Hello and welcome to episode 2.2 of Off the Record. I know uh, today has been a very exciting day with all sorts of new Apple announcements, and I'm very sad that I can't make fun of Zach's fanboyness uh, on this episode. But instead, we got some really cool things coming up. Um, one of the first ones is an interview with Joe Conyers from an organization called Song Trust, which I think is really, really awesome and not discussed enough music business thing. And first up, though, I have a really cool interview with my friend Ross Barber. We have been having some of you ask about if we're going to still do Ask OTR and answer some questions. So by popular demand, I'm going to open that back up, or should I say open that can of worms back up. If you have any questions, please feel free to use our Tumblr, use hashtag AskOTR, or email us at offtherecordfm at gmail.com. With that said, let's get the show started. I talked to Ross Barber. Ross is the owner and head web designer at Electric Kiwi and also does a fantastic podcast that I always recommend called Bridge the Atlantic. We get into the weeds a little bit about good, smart web strategy, as well as why you have to support musicians and talking about some of the more in-the-weeds thoughts about what you need to do when you're thinking about strategy for your website and how you make it and come off looking in a consistent feel for everything that you do. I hope you enjoy it. A lot of people have said websites are not needed ever since MySpace came out. And I've always found that pretty stupid. What do you see that is one of the more important things you think people miss and why they need a website in the social media post MySpace world? In some ways, you kind of answered that by saying the word MySpace. Um, (laughs) Because what I found was, I and I, I know this from some of my clients, they had built really big followings on MySpace, but they didn't have a website or a mailing list or, or anything. So when MySpace uh, died its death, they had no way of keeping in contact with these fans that they built up. And I think, you know, I don't foresee that happening with Facebook or, or Twitter or, or any of the current social networks that we're using, not to say that it won't happen. You know, having a way of keeping in contact with your fans is so important. And you, you just you don't want to be that person that, that didn't collect the email addresses and didn't have something that you own versus a social platform that you are essentially renting the space from. So you, you, just, you need to have something that, that, you're, that you own, that you can control, and that you, um, you know, you're not relying on Facebook or, or Twitter to keep in contact with people because they could change the way that they work. And you know, without your fans, what are you? Yes, that, 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 that's a, actually a great way to cap that. I, well, I do think it's funny because I think one of the things, and I'd love to know if you've been seeing this too, is that I think bands are starting to give up on Facebook a bit and realizing that there's just, since Facebook has diminished the reach of the posts unless you pay, there's just not a lot to do in promotion on there anymore since no one's seeing anything you do and it doesn't even feel worth the time to write the keystrokes. Have you seen anything somewhere? Do you have a feeling on that? Oh, 100%. I mean, um, it's a conversation I have with a lot of my my clients because even though I don't do social media management or anything like that, Obviously, it's still related to the website stuff. So I do get a lot of questions about Facebook and Twitter. And that's one of the main concerns that artists talk to me about is 
should I be should I be bothering with Facebook anymore? No one sees my stuff, and it's just the same thing I hear from almost everyone. And I notice it myself when I'm using Facebook as a business or for my podcast. No one sees anything. It can be really frustrating, and I think because of that, people are moving to other social networks, or they are focusing more on a website that they can direct people to over and over and over again. But yeah, Facebook hear about that all the time. Every second email <laughs> it's mentioned. Yeah. One of the things I think that is important with that, and like I know when I go to a band website, is like I kind of view it as uh, a place where I can see where I want to go to keep in touch with a band I enjoy. Is there any strategy you've seen with that that is helpful to bands in your experience of like trying to direct people? places? Is there anything you go through in a process as a web designer for that? One of the key things I think is knowing kind of what the main purpose of the site is um, and knowing where your audience hang out. So if your audience are generally Twitter users, then you will want to make sure that you make it really easy for them to see your Twitter feed and to follow you right away. So put that kind of up front and center. Uh, but in terms of like a process, I mean, I I talk quite extensively with with bands before I start working with them to find out you know what they want to focus on at least for maybe the next six months or the next year. So we always try and put that as the main focus. So whether that's they want to play or book more shows, then we put their tour dates up front and center for everyone to see because that's the first thing that we want them to to look at. Um, same if you know they got a new record out, we want to push that you know up front and center. It's kind of all about guiding the user to do what you want them to do. And if that is to buy your music, then make sure they can hear your music and make sure that it's one click away for them to get to where they need to buy it. Um, and same with socials. If uh, if you want to direct them to your Facebook or your YouTube or your, your Twitter or your Instagram, make sure that it's accessible. They don't have to dig around to find it um, because people are busy and lazy and they don't want to be hunting around for stuff. So make everything as easy as possible would be my main tip. So one of the things I, and maybe it's that I listen to artsy bands sometimes, is I feel like I get to their website and it's more of an art project than a uh, place where I can get to know them. Mm -hmm. Have you found that there's any like best practices in what should always be there with a website or is it really case by case? Generally, I, I personally take it case by case because every artist is different. So they'll have slightly different needs. But there are a few things that I think should be on everyone's website. And number one, and this is one that, that so many bands miss, is a contact page. Now, I find it really uh, alarming, I guess, that um, some artists make it really difficult to contact them. Um, because if you are a blogger or a venue or anyone, you know, that's going to provide some kind of opportunity for a band, um, if you can't contact them, you're either going to spend a lot of time trying to find a way to, to contact them or you're going to give up. I would say a contact page is 100% necessary. Even if you know you're not particularly social, there needs to be some way to reach you. I always recommend having a, an about or bio page because really people do want to know even a little bit about you. You know, you, you don't have to give them your life story, but there needs to be something there that tells people who you are, what you do, and why they should care. We're talking about musicians here. so important that people can at least hear your music, preferably see some videos, whether they're live or studio. There has to be something there for people to, to hear. 
And of course, if you're a live band, you want to be able to push your shows, you want to have listings and make it easy for people to contact you to book you for a show as well. And I always recommend maybe for slightly more established artists or at least artists who are starting to make a name for themselves, have a press section so that everything's there in one place for journalists, bloggers to, to get because they're not going to hunt around looking for everything. I've, you know, a selection of quotes to show that people are talking about you and that you're doing stuff that's that's worth mentioning um, because that can help as well when it comes to booking gigs and uh, getting more press because if you've had press then you know people can see that you're worth writing about and you know that should help. Uh, agreed. So what are the th- the frustrations I think people have with websites and, you know, like with any taking on any new endeavor. And a lot of times I think bands don't see this as like the most necessary thing in the world, even though I would a hundred percent argue against that, that basically once you have about a thousand fans, it's good to start getting a website and getting good strategy going. Is that one, they're intimidated by the idea of that. um, If they get somebody to design it, that they're never going to hear from them again. Now, obviously, I know you to be a responsible person who doesn't do that. Is there any insight you have of how somebody can know whether like, they're going down the wrong road uh, about never going to be able to get anything changed with this website again? I would say do your research. Um, if you are thinking about hiring a designer, look at some of the stuff they've done Maybe even reach out to some of the artists or clients that they've worked with just to find out what your, their experience was. Um, because, you know, if they've had a good experience, they'll tell you. If they've had a bit bad experience, they will definitely tell you. So um, I would say that's definitely important. And I would say really just have a conversation with the designer and get to know them and, and get a feel. I, I think you can, you can pretty much get a good gut instinct from someone if, you know, if you can trust them or if they're just going to disappear after you've paid. But the way I work, I, I design every website using WordPress as a backend so, um, so that my clients can update their websites themselves. Um, because I think that's really important. You know, you don't want to send like a news post off to someone that's urgent and needs to go up today. And, you know, designers are busy. They might take a day or so to get back to you. So you don't want to have to rely on someone else to make the updates for you. Um, but it's always good to have someone on hand you know, if you have a question, because, you know, even even though my clients update them sites and their sites themselves, there's always going to be something technical or something that happens that maybe they need to ask about. I definitely make myself available. But I would say if you're looking to hire a designer, find out if you can update the site yourself. See if they will provide a user guide or some kind of training and speak to some of the people that they've worked with to get an idea of, you know, whether they're good at what they do and if they are going to be around to help you, if you have any any questions, I think that that that's a great point, and it's great that you do do the WordPress thing because that was like when I first started building websites for bands I managed, like that was the main thing. Is that I was like, all right, I'm really intimidated about updating it myself, and then I realized like if you do this in WordPress, you can learn WordPress even if you're not a technologically apt person, pretty damn fast. Exactly, and I think. Um, over the, the last few years since I've been doing this full time, I've learned lots of ways to, to make things even easier for people uh, to update their sites. So even if they've never used anything like WordPress before, I try and make it as simple as possible. And I think that's something that my clients appreciate. A lot of them um, are quite scared. Like, you know, they're quite intimidated about using something because they're like, I don't know what to do. I've never used something. So I always kind of tell them, it's like, if you can use a program like Word, you're going to be okay to use WordPress because it's set up in a way that um, 
is user friendly and you know tons of tons of artists use it tons of people that are not technological use it is a small learning curve but once you've got it i think you've got it i totally agree so one of the big debates to get into the weeds a little bit for some people who do get this is that a lot of people seem to be of the opinion that you should build on tumblr instead of wordpress do you have any feelings about that i've personally not really used tumblr so it's a it's kind of a difficult one for me to answer but i think with tumblr as far as I know, you are relatively limited in the type of designs and sort of layout you can use. I know that, that you do have quite a few options, but I think you are still limited. I don't know. Is that correct? Compared to WordPress, I would say that Tumblr is severely, severely limited while there's still a, there's still a good amount of things you can do and definitely a good amount of things that most bands aren't even taking advantage of. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's the, the social aspect with Tumblr, which is quite good. Um, you know, you can reshare, reblog things which is nice but I think uh, and again that's not something that you 100% control because it's it's on Tumblr um, I guess I should probably clarify when we're talking about WordPress we're talking about a self-hosted WordPress and not WordPress.com which is different very limited um, not recommended um, so yeah it, it goes back again to the whole social media thing is like you don't own your Tumblr site but you do own your self-hosted WordPress site. Um, so you're free to do a lot more. And, and and I feel that an artist's website should really reflect who they are in both in a visual sense and in you know the content that they post. So I'm not opposed to people using Tumblr as a blog, for example. So they would have their website, but then they could also link out to their Tumblr and use that as a blog, as another way of driving people back to the website. Um, but in terms of designing and building a website, I would say WordPress is the way to go. You talked about the visual aspect and having it reflect them. So one of the things I think that gets confusing for people is the role of a web designer in that as opposed to perhaps maybe the album cover designer. How do you figure into that when an album cover has already been designed or a logo has already been designed? What do you do to help reflect uh, that image in a band on their website? It varies a little bit depending on the artwork. Some artwork can be quite easy to sort of implement into the overall design so that the design of the website can be quite closely based on the album artwork or some other artwork that they've already got. Other times, it's not so easy. For most independent artists, I'm of the opinion that photography is really helpful in establishing like their branding on their website especially because they're not really going to be particularly well known it's important people can kind of get a feel for who they are and the photography if it's good should do that um, so I would definitely so recommend implementing their logo at least so if we can't implement the whole artwork then the logo I think should be present on there whether we use photography or we just base the design on kind of the colors and the overall vibe of the artwork it's definitely important to have consistency and some designers will do everything. I sometimes will do the EP artwork or CD artwork and the website and kind of plan it all at the very start. So we'll plan the EP artwork so that it will work on the website. It can be diff difficult sometimes as a designer using the work that someone else has created because it's not always had that same sort of forethought. To give you kind of an idea of my process, and this is probably similar for a lot of designers is um, examples of other sites that the band likes can be really helpful. And even examples of websites they don't like can also be just as helpful. You know, combining that with the photography that they've got 
and any artwork that they might already have can be really helpful in them um, in crafting a idea for the design. Yeah, I th you know it's funny in just about every creative field. Like uh, I've been listening to a lot of director interviews, uh, and it, you know what you like and what you don't like is the best way when you have to communicate with somebody else to get your creative vision across to have them help you make you happy. So yeah. keeping track of that as a band is um, super super important. Definitely, and I think um, because you know obviously I. I'm a designer and the, the band, the, most people in a band are not going to be designers and they're not going to know how to word things in a way that, that I would word them. Um, so having visual references can be really important because they might not know, for example, you know, like they maybe see like a slider on the top of the website and they really love it, but they don't know what it's called or they don't know how to explain it. If I can see that, I know exactly what they're talking about and it makes it really easy for me to replicate or create something similar. So yeah, I think that's always really important. So I would say if for any bands who are thinking of contacting a designer, before you even contact the designer, try and have a few things in mind that you like and that you don't like, because reference points are really important. They can really help move things along quickly. Yeah, I think also a key word in that is uh, a few. Yes. If somebody's coming to you and they already have their album artwork, maybe a few t-shirts, what helps you to have, like, so I'm thinking about if you're a manager or a label and you're working with a band and you're hiring out an album cover designer, but then you're going to hire you for the website, what would be helpful for you to have from that album cover designer dash merch designer um, in order to make a good website from what they have? I think if they can provide the individual elements of the design, that can be really helpful. So, for example, uh, the logo separate from the artwork maybe the photography separate from the overall design, you know, all the individual pieces that make that artwork exist um, can be really helpful because then that way we've got a little bit of flexibility to work with things um, and, and, you know, try different things out. And same, you know, if, if they want to base it on a merch design rather than maybe their, their album artwork, then yet anything that can be separated from the, the final product is always helpful. Basically, just as much as they can provide that can be played around with. I guess that, that's kind of where I come into problems with some musicians in that because they've never used a graphics program, for example, they don't know that you know a flattened version of an image can't be separated once it's flattened. Um, so just kind of be, try and think forward, you know, ahead a little bit. And when someone's designing something for you, ask them to send you the layered version of the file as well as the final version, just in case, you know, a web designer or anyone that's going to be creating something for you down, you know, further down the line is able to do that easily and quickly without too much back and forth. So to clarify, what is the layered version called versus the not layered version called? Like, what would you say that in language? Because, like, I'm somebody, like, I've dealt with this, but by the time I need to know it again, I've forgotten it, so... Um, for, for some... Well, I, I generally use Photoshop, so it would be a .psd file. Um, but if you use Illustrator, it would be, like, a .ai or a .eps. There's lots of different versions. Um, I think if you say to the designer you need the layered version, they should know what you mean. But yeah, you will be looking for a PSD, EPS, or AI generally. Awesome. So one of the things I think that also is like baffling, and this goes for like whether it's an album release or a website going up, is that bands have no clue after they post a message on all their social media 
how to bring traffic back to their website uh, again and like what good strategy is with that. Is there anything you could talk about with how they actually keep people going to that website again? Yeah, um, there's there's quite a few things they can do and, and I find that this is really the area where people fall down and that they launch their site and then it's like, well, I don't really know what to do with it now. The suggestion that I have is to try and blog regularly and if you're struggling with ideas of what to blog about, think about the kind of stuff you would post on Facebook and use your blog as a way to post content that people can come back to and you know see updates for. I would suggest when you have a new video out, post that video as a blog post and send people to that blog post rather than sending them directly to YouTube. Because if you're sending them to your website to view the video, once they're there, it's likely that they're then going to click around and see other things that maybe they missed the first time around. Maybe they've never been to your website before and you know they're going to read your bio, they're going to find out more about you. They're going to go to your store and they're going to see, oh, you have shirts available. I'll buy one while I'm here. Any new content that you have, I would suggest posting it to your website first, sharing that link rather than a link to YouTube or SoundCloud or wherever you're posting it to keep people coming back. And really just be blogging regularly. It's one of the hardest things, but it really will help. Gets people, lets people get to know you a little bit more, and it's driving traffic back to your site every time. So it's just getting into the habit of doing it, I suppose, is the hardest part. Yes, I, I think most of the time getting habits developed is is definitely a difficult one. And one of the things like I think people miss, too, is like for motivation. I know it seems intimidating, the idea of going into Google Analytics, because it's this crazy, nerdy language, but... It's really written simply, and you can see the effects of it, because like one of the things you can click on is, you made a blog of your new video or a tour update where your guitarist picked his nose a lot, but what you can see just by clicking that is that if 100 people came, maybe 10 went to your merch store after that, and that probably resulted in some sales, and that is a thing. Um, do you have any insight on how bands can see those tangible results? Um, I think, like you said, Google Analytics is a good one. Um, if they're intimidated by going into analytics themselves, then they can even just see, you know, reports from, you know, their sales, for example, obviously depending on what they use for their sales. But, you know, if they keep a note of when they post a blog, you know, compare that with any sales or maybe uh, maybe streams from Spotify, not Spotify, SoundCloud uh, or YouTube views, you can get an idea of, of what's working. If you have comments on your blog, encourage people to be commenting and that, you know, is another way of seeing the kind of interaction that you're getting. But yeah, analytics is definitely always going to be the best one, but I can understand why artists would find it a little bit overwhelming and intimidating the first time. One thing I like about um, WordPress is the Jetpack feature. So if you have Jetpack, it's like a much much more simplified version of analytics. It doesn't go as in-depth, but I think it gives you a more basic understanding of what works. So I would definitely recommend that if you're using WordPress. Install that and you'll, you'll be able to follow your, your traffic graph and see what days are busy, what days aren't. And, you know, when you publish a post, are people visiting more pages on your website at that particular day? If so, most likely it's because you posted a new post, so do more of that. As well as doing this, you host a podcast that I always recommend when people write me and say, I like your podcast, which I like. You guys are always at the top of the list. Um, Could you tell uh, my listeners about Bridge of the Atlantic? Yeah, well, first, thank you. 
Um, and also, thank you for being a guest a while ago. Uh, uh, it, it was a very good time. I'm glad. Yeah, it was, that's, it was uh, about, kind of, about, about a year ago, right? Yeah, uh, Yeah, it would have been. I think it was probably just before we launched. So we're almost a year old now. And it's been a crazy ride. Uh, so yeah, our show is called Bridge the Atlantic. And the reason it's called Bridge the Atlantic is I'm in Scotland and my co-host is in Canada. We interview musicians and other creative people. So we've had actors, filmmakers, producers lots of different people on and we our aim is to be a, a entertaining but informative kind of show so we like to get to know the people behind you know their work um we like to have inspirational and uh, insightful stories and advice combined with uh, just generally getting to know who they are as people because i think that's something that there's maybe not enough of um there's tons of music business and music marketing kind of podcasts where we get some really great advice and they, you know, I love them. I listen to a lot of them. But I find that there's not really many platforms where we can really just get to know the people themselves. hope that's kind of what we achieve. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Yes, but, but it, people never know how much work doing uh, a, a weekly podcast can be. It's, uh, it, it's almost like carrying a boulder on your back sometimes that you know it's the work's got to get done every week. Yeah, and we've kind of got the added... Uh, the added um, trouble of doing video as well as audio. So, uh, yeah, I think that kind of triples our workload in some ways. Um, but, yeah, if anyone wants to, to find out what we're doing, you'll find us at uh, bridge-the-atlantic.com. We're on iTunes and YouTube. All of our links are on the website. So uh, dig in and uh, hopefully you'll find something you enjoy. That's um, another thing that we want to do is just introduce people to new artists, new people in the industry that they've maybe not heard of. And one of the great things that we've found has been happening lately is a lot of our guests have been connecting with each other. Um, and it's kind of brought about a lot of opportunities that we didn't even think were going to happen at all. Um, and yeah, it's been really exciting. I think you guys are doing a great job with it. So you recently had a really popular post that seemed to resonate with a lot of people that said, or I should say a tweet, uh, it said, the musicians you love need you, buy their music, go to their shows, share their posts engage, promote, they need you more than you know. What inspired this uh, tweet and, you know, have you seen... Is I, I often think about, like, how people really can never see... We don't even have time to see the behind the scenes of how much everybody we enjoy that does creative endeavors, what they go through to do them for us. And I was curious if you... What inspired this and if you have a good example of the they need you more than you know part? It was actually inspired by a guest we had on Bridge the Atlantic. After the interview, we spoke with her for around an hour and a half, um, which is unexpected. But, um, but she really opened up about the struggles that she was facing. But from the outside, you would look at her and think you are successful because you've got a big following on social media. Uh, she... Um, she was on. She was on The Voice a few years ago, um, and she made it to the final ten, I think it was. And I think because she'd been on a, a big show and she released an album uh, independently and and everything, people just assumed, "Oh, you must be. You must be making a pretty good living," you know. Um, but she really opened up to us about how she can't tour because if, when she tours, she has to pay her band, and by the time she's paid her band, there's no money left, and um, and it kind of just. It struck a chord with me that, um, that I think we all assume that the artists we love are more successful than they maybe are. 
they maybe need to be a little more transparent about the struggles they're going through. I don't think they should be saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so poor, I'm so desperate for money or, or, or anything like that. But I think, you know, the average listener doesn't know the work that goes in, the money they have to pay out for certain things and uh, the money that they're making or not making. I think the, the artists need to maybe be a little bit more transparent and the fans need to be a little bit more understanding and um, aware of the struggles that artists are going through. So I kind of just wanted to, to tweet that just as a reminder, you know, like, hey, you know, if you like someone, then, you know, they, they need you. If, you. if you're not buying their music, if you're not going to their shows, then they're not making a living. And if they're not making a living, then they can't make, you know, the music that, that you want to listen to. And I kind of described it. I wrote a blog post based on that uh, tweet, and I'll give you the link um, after. And I kind of went into more detail about how it's a creative ecosystem. Really, like if if the artists aren't making money, then they can't hire people to do the work for them. So that you know that could be people like yourself as a producer, or me as a web designer, or you know a publicist, or anything like that. They can't pay these people if they're not making the money. Um, and you know, we are music consumers, and if we're not making the money, then we can't buy the music. So it's kind of like a you know a bit of a vicious cycle, really. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of say to to people you need to support the musicians you love, otherwise they're not going to be able to, you know, keep creating what you love. And I'm actually considering writing a book about this, but um, but aimed more uh, for the musicians as, as to how the musicians can have the conversation with their fans and encourage them to really support them and get behind them as well. So, yeah. It's I, kind think, of that, I think that would be a very cool book to have in the world. I lo- yeah, I love the idea of it. It's a hard, hard one to form into words, though, right? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the struggle I've got. I've, had, I've spoken with a few people um, because my, my concern was maybe it's a bit Amanda Palmer esque because she wrote the art of asking, but um, but then you know I had a really great conversation with Ariel Hyatt from Cyber PR, and she made the very good point. It's like, well, not everyone is Amanda. Not everyone has a million Twitter followers. Um, so there's definitely a place for you know the, the smaller artist. They can they can relate in maybe a slightly different way. So I think also the, the there, there's a thing I've learned with books too is that not every book speaks the language that somebody else speaks, and Amanda's book speaks a particular language to, that I don't know is appealing to everybody. I had a really I'm writing a book on creativity right now, and I had the experience of reading uh, the War of Art, which is considered the classic in the genre, and the way he talks, I just can't stand. Right. And so I'm just trying to say it in a way that relates more to me and the people who relate to the type of language I speak. Yeah, definitely. I can definitely see that. And I think it's important um, that, yeah, we know who our, our audience are and we speak to them in a way that they're going to respond to. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading that book. I, like, I, I know I tweeted a while ago, I finally finished your book. Uh, which was awesome. It was a. It's. It, I, I have so little time to read. Um, but it's probably the only book I've read in the last year that I've read from start to finish. Um, and yeah, it was a. Uh, it's worth reading. So if anyone's listening that hasn't heard Jesse's book, one, what's wrong with you? And two, uh, buy it and read it because um, the advice that you get in that book, you know, you would spend years researching and learning that. And I'm sure Jesse has spent years researching, learning that on your behalf. So, uh, yeah, go and read it. Thanks so much. On the new Off the Record, it isn't just a bunch of people talking at you. We'd like to hear from you, our listeners, about what you think about some of the issues in our minds. We may expand upon these issues in future episodes and want to hear your feedback. 
This week we're wondering if you think guest vocalists on songs usually kill the vibe of the song, or if it makes it better. What do you find most of the time? We'd love to know. Last week we asked how long you think opening band set should be. We also wanted to know how long you think a headlining band set should be. We got some great responses. Here's one first from Madison Ray. Hey, this is at Maddie K. Ray. I think that opening bands, how long they play should depend on the size of the show. If it's a smaller show, like smaller, like less than 300 cap, 15 minutes is fine. If it's anything like bigger, like small clubs, anything bigger than that, I think every band that's playing like to a cap that size deserves at least 30 minutes. I think giving locals and openers a chance to like really impress our audience instead of just giving them 15 minutes to roll through three songs and, and then here's get off Brandon stage. Johnson. especially if the band the headliner is into like outreach and like supporting like support your local scene but also supporting just generally just smaller artists i think that would be a great way just to give them a few extra minutes and just have fun you know I think a band that's opening should play for about 25 minutes or so. Um, I know that's been a perfect amount of time for any time my band has played. It's just about five songs, roughly. Perfect amount of time, not too long, not too short. And then for the headlining band, I would say, I think like an hour 15, honestly. Like an hour and a half is like, sometimes kind of drags on a little bit too long, unless it's like a really special, intimate show where there's less bands on the bill or so. But if it's a full full bill, like hour 15, done, that's like, you can play all the hits, plus more, whatever you need, and that's good to go, I think. One of the things I hope to do with the new Off The Record is talk to some of the people behind cool services that really are helping musicians. Because they're so busy helping musicians, they're not out there tooting their horn and buying ads in every magazine where you would see them. One of these services is Song Trust, which I've long thought was one of the cooler services in the business that I just about never hear anybody talk about, and I can't see why since I've seen them help plenty of my friends. I sat down and talked to Joe Conyers, who's the head of Song Trust, as well as the head of digital at Downtown Music. Awesome. So what's I think is interesting to my listeners about Song Trust is there's very few services that are ever new in the music business. And I feel like what you guys are doing is not something you hear about when you read the books you get assigned in music business school, let's say, or what your friends tell you to read. Can you explain what Song Trust does? Yeah, so Song Trust took what was typically a very gatekeeped part of the music business, music publishing. And has opened it up to you know just about anyone who's written a song and wants to collect royalties on their song. Typically, uh, a you know bigger music publisher, even like a downtown music publishing, really needs you to be either a one in a hundred or one in you know a million amazing development writer. So you know someone we're really trying to invest in and build up as a writer, or already earning royalties, or already have stuff going on, but. With streaming, people are starting to generate royalties a lot earlier, and it's the process in which you do to collect royalties on the publishing side is much more complicated and expensive, frankly, to collect your royalties on than the the artist side. So is it mostly about eliminating bloat, optimizing um, how this is collected? So prior to Songtrust's existence, you know, you would probably just sign up for an ASCAP, a BMI, or CSAC, which is a performing rights organization. And they're going to collect your performing royalties. So that's when your song is performed on radio, on TV, on streaming services, etc. 
But for streaming services, which a lot of our clients are really trying to collect, only 15% of the total royalties for songwriters comes from the performing rights. The rest is the mechanical rights, which make up the other 85%. Those are really complex to collect. That's in, in the United States alone. And there's uh, each streaming service engages a different royalties administrator. There are about five in the United States. So you have to get your songs registered these, these places. Some of them don't really want your songs because they, they really want you to be kind of published so they can know who you are. SongTrust kind of plugs you into all these services here in America. We also have direct deals with a number of uh, digital services like YouTube and Google and Amazon. And so we're getting your royalties faster and, and getting them directly. Outside the United States, we work with about 42 of the kind of ASCAP BMIs of each country and uh, register your songs directly, which makes them pay a lot more attention to those songs and with proper metadata so that they know how to match those songs to the uh, recordings because the, the composition you know, can be covered and retitled and, and cut by other artists. So uh, we're making sure that those are that information is being sent. Some of this is a little uh, in the weeds uh, for some of the listeners who I think are a little, I think publishing is one of the most intimidating things for the musicians I talk to. So to explain, you guys get everything from when somebody covers your song to it gets played on the radio to when they play live. Is there anything else I'm missing? Song Trust basically does everything except try to pitch your music first for film and television commercials. So, you know, we let you do that. Uh, but any other royalty that is, you know, generatable from the from your from the composition of your music, we're going to be able to get for you. But we don't do the kind of uh, the pitching of music because we have so many clients. We represent, I think, almost 50,000 songwriters. So we can't, we can't really guarantee you're going to get a placement. And some people don't have music that needs to be pitched. You know, sometimes we have clients that are, you know, making yoga music and they do really well from streaming services. Some people make really weird <laughs> music that doesn't necessarily make sense to be pitched, but they would never be able to attract a typical publisher uh, because it just doesn't make sense. But there's a lot of royalties for them to get. And then we have plenty of bands and songwriters and, you know, their agents, lawyers, managers that we help with, uh, collect the royalties from. We also get a lot of folks that are coming off of, you know, a major deal. They really got it. They didn't like their deal. They never got them any uh, sync licensing anyway. They didn't get them any, in any films or something. So they just want to collect their royalties and, and we're here to do that. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess that brings me to, is there any size where you're too big or too small to utilize the service? You know, in general, for SongTrust, if... You you know put out a record ten years ago and you know you're really not getting a lot of streams. Probably not the best service for you, just because you probably don't have a lot of money waiting for you. Now, if you are about to put out a new record and you have a good feeling about it and you think it's going to be big, we're definitely a great service and we're going to get you set up. And you know the nice thing about SongTrust is that if you end up doing really well, it's very easy to jump from SongTrust and be upstream to a, new, a traditional music publisher. In fact, they're kind of you know it'll save them a lot of hassle from having to collect all this information. We can give them the information in a very easy way. It's fruitful for the songwriter as well because they tend to get a better deal because they know what they're getting uh, in terms of how much royalties and what have you. So at the, at the high end, you know, I would also say we have some songwriters that they just they are so in demand that they don't need to have pitch or, or they, don't, they don't care to be pitched. They don't want their, their music in film and television, but they still need you know, royalty collections. So they come to us because... You know, we're just a service. We're really just kind of a, a you know, you got to think of us like a like a utility for for you know music publishing, almost like a software, because we're just plugging you in all these places, and you just don't have to fill out all these extra 
pieces of paperwork and spend all these money on fees to get affiliated at all these societies and deal with all these these things. So we're, we've kind of made it easy. So you don't need to have already registered for BMI, SAS, CSAC, and uh, ASCAP uh, to work with you guys as well, correct? Correct. If you're just getting started and you've never, you know, never affiliated with a society, you can come into our, our platform and we'll help you get registered. So, you know, if you're just, you know, getting started, but you know you're going to be, uh, you know, a, a songwriter for a long time, you can join Song Trust. You can sign up for either ASCAP, BMI, or SOCAN, which is the Canadian uh, PRO. And then you'll get that relationship with them and uh, be able to start collecting royalties. Along those lines, though, when, you know, we, we highly suggest you do establish a, a, if you can, if you're in a city where there's location for one of these PROs, to try and go into their events, try to meet people there, because they're, they're really helpful in furthering your career. They can get you introduced to a, maybe a record label or another publisher or a management company or a good lawyer. And other songwriters, too. That's really another big piece of their uh, you know, advocacy is they're dealing with new songwriters who maybe need a you know, keyboardist on this new record or they want to do a demo, but they need a better vocalist. And so they're going to know those people and, and kind of you know, connect you in with, with your community in that area. So what we haven't mentioned is sound exchange. Do you guys play any role in what they collect? Song Trust is specifically for songwriters. Now, if you're an artist, too, you should definitely go and sign up for sound exchange on your own because it's free and you're going to make you know any royalties you get from Pandora or streaming radio, Live 365, uh, Sirius, etc. You're going to get those on the artist side in addition to your publishing royalties. So it's, if you're an artist, it's a no-brainer to sign up for sound exchange. It's really just a great, great thing for for some artists that are that are getting streaming uh, on uh, radio. Yes, and to clarify a point, Sound Exchange collects performances, which means you played on a track, as opposed to radio, which is traditionally only paid the songwriters, which is why publishing what you guys are collecting. Correct. Yeah. So. Sound Exchange is a, is a relatively new performing rights organization that represents artists and their recordings, whereas publishing really thinks to the compositions, so the underlying song, you know, the lyrics and the melody and, and that instead of the actual recording. Are the advantages of signing up with you guys only monetary? Pretty much. I mean, you know, we're not doing any promotion of your music. We're not going to promise you the world. We are, we are, like I said, a service. There are a lot of pitch companies that can can pitch your music and you can join one of those even though you're a member of song trust we don't take the rights you would need to to assign your, you know your your music to be pitched for uh film and television or games or any of the other places so you know if you find a really good sync house that you're as they're called you know the people who pitch your your music uh, as independent um if you if they're paying attention to you or they really like your music and they're gonna they're gonna be able to do work for you we highly suggest you work with them there are, you know, I've heard all the horror stories in that, though, too, so you have to be really careful um, and, and you know, make sure that that's the right fit. And there definitely seems to be m many of those that go around uh, these days. So you talk a lot about how you guys are working on a global span. So I think for a lot of musicians, it's hard for them to imagine a global thing. Is there any instances you've seen of success stories you guys have had with that or anything that you could relay? Absolutely. The biggest one is, is especially because, you know, a lot of our audience is, is U.S. based, which means English language countries tend to do pretty well. There is a, there, the, the laws in America are different than the laws in the U.K. and across Europe as it relates to digital downloads, especially. So if you have a lot going on in terms of maybe you sold 500 records or 500 singles in the UK, there's actually a uh, royalty there waiting for you. 
So when iTunes sells a digital download in the UK, of the per, the 30% that uh, you know iTunes holds back, you know from your from your uh, artist royalties, part of that goes to a local society, and you can get that money back basically. So it's about you know about six pence, uh, so about nine cents or so, depending on the exchange rate per download. So if you sell 500 tracks, you have a pretty good um, you know, little pot of money there. More if it's, if it's an album, obviously. And so this is something that people don't know about. So we have a lot of people who, you know, did a, a couple dates in the UK and sold some records, and they're able to get some money from that. And they're also, if you are touring outside the United States, we have uh, a tool inside of our site that lets you submit your set list. So you can submit your set list in specific countries and actually get paid for your gigs, which is crazy. You can also do it in America. You do it through ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC. With that, I think a lot of uh, listeners don't realize that too, that that's one of the more painful parts of being a band manager is that you submit your set lists, which usually is the same for a lot of the tour, but and then you get paid, which the clubs pay into. Are you submitting twice to both ASCAP and BMI, or you just submit through you guys and it's done in one step? If you're only, you, you can only be a member of ASCAP or BMI as a songwriter. So say your band is, is both, then you're getting to the, the part where it's annoying. Unfortunately, ASCAP and BMI are still only let the songwriters submit uh, their songwriters uh, set list, so you're going to need to do it through them. But outside the United States, we're actually the only service, to my knowledge, that lets you submit. We have all the forms specific to each country baked in our site, so you can say, okay, I played a show in the United Kingdom, I need to know the promoter and the venue name. If I go play a, a, something in Germany or Sweden or, or France, it's going to be slightly different. They're going to want to know how many ticket sales, etc., and maybe who the promoter was. Um, so uh, we've made that really easy, and you can take your same set list, just kind of like a playlist of your set list, and submit it to each of those if you're playing the same set list each night. So you also work at Downtown Music. So for anybody who's not familiar with Downtown Music, can you explain what that is? So Downtown Music Publishing is a top 10 music publisher. We represent John Lennon, we represent Nikki Six from Motley Crue, One Direction, Santa Gold, Mike Snow, uh, and a bunch of other writers that write on Top 40 Records, as well as a bunch of new development bands like Fox, and um, we, were, you know, we have a whole host of, of developing songwriters as well that are working with new projects here and there. And so how does Downtown tie into Song Trust? So Song Trust is kind of the technology division of, of Downtown. In a lot of ways, if you sign up for Song Trust, you're getting the same kind of back office pipes as you get at downtown. Except with downtown, we're going to be working your, your music creatively, we're going to be developing you as a songwriter, and we're going to be pitching your music for film and television, advertisements, games, we're going to try to get artists to cut your record, we're going to be you know, connecting you with other songwriters. Um, and if you're a, uh, you know, we have certain kind of composers that do really interesting things like uh, we, have, we just started representing RJD2, and he's going to be working on a composer series with us. And so he's going to make a bunch of music for film and television exclusively. And we also represent Hans Zimmer and uh, Atticus Ross. We're working on a lot of film projects with them as well and uh, making sure they're collecting their royalties internationally. Wow, that's awesome. And so then Downtown also has a label, or is that did that go away when that uh, split happened? Yeah, so, so the origin of the company is we were originally a label. We started a publishing company. Eventually, the publishing company became quite big. The, the record company was bought back by the original founders of the record company, so they're operating that independently. They're doing quite successfully at that. Um, the publishing company just kind of grew really big really fast, and uh, the, the folks who ran the record company wanted to be in the record business. 
interesting choice for them. What is the difference between Song Trust compared to what TuneCore and CD Baby have done similarly? Song Trust was the first kind of offering in this space. Um, TuneCore produced their own version, uh, which they use a lot of sub-publishers, is my understanding, in, in foreign countries, which means your relatives are going to take longer to get to you, and they're going to be double feed. So, you know, we, we, we've been kind of focused on making a, a very tech-savvy publisher and, uh, you know, offer a whole lot more features, I think, than, than them. I don't think they have the set list thing. We also have a tool for YouTube that allows you to collect your royalties more accurately on YouTube. CD Baby is actually powered by SongTrust. So we are, uh, you know, partners with them. And, and so if you're a CD Baby member and you want to collect your royalties, you can opt into CD Baby Pro. I highly suggest it. You know, you're going to be getting the same thing as Song Trust, uh, pretty much. Interesting. So you mentioned YouTube. Can you explain what you collect from YouTube? Because I know that that's something every musician's on, but almost no one knows the royalties they're really supposed to be getting from it. Yeah, it's it's very very new and very confusing. My typical suggestion to someone who's just getting started as a musician is join YouTube, become a YouTube partner, and you know collect royalties directly from that, and that's going to monetize your channel. Now, if you have uh, a label or you have some other uh, management or your, your music is being used off of your channel, that's when you need to go get your publishing rights secured. So that's when something like a, a song trust comes into play where you, you need to state, you know, assert your claim into the YouTube system, the content management system of YouTube, which most independent people don't have access to. You've got to have a, an agent like a song trust or your publisher to go and say, hey, that's my music in that, that other video. So say, you know, you get some press and you do a live set on uh, like an NPR or something and they don't take, uh, they don't make you waive your, your rights, you're able to say, I played on that video and collect some of the royalties on that video. Also the same thing if, if someone covers your song or if someone puts your music in like a cat video or something. Each of those have slightly different um, royalty rates. The covers though specifically earned about 50% of the net after YouTube has taken its fee. So that's a pretty good royalty. Awesome. This was really, really informative. If you're hearing this music, that means that it's time for an ad. This week's episode is brought to you by a project that's near and dear to my heart. It's my book, Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business, which is a 725-page guide to the ideas, tools, and techniques you need to know to get your music heard in the music business today. I spent four years researching the book, writing down everything I learned about the music business, working in nearly every aspect of the music business since I was a teenager. It has just been updated for 2015, and there's over 100 pages of new or refreshed content in this year's edition. To learn more, go to getmorefansbook.com. This week I'd like to recommend a sad recommendation since it's the end for about a year. Is uh, The Mr. Robot season finale happened this week and of course it did not disappoint and has shown to be the best TV show on TV since Breaking Bad and if you haven't started watching it you are really, really, really missing out. Secondly, I'd like to recommend the documentary Deep Web. It's a great look at what happened with Silk Road and the implications of Tor, which is also known as like the dark net, and it's the internet that lives below the internet, some would say. Um, it's a really well-made documentary and uh, really keeps your attention. And funny enough, it's made by uh, the other dude that wasn't Keanu Reeves and Bill and Ted. And Keanu Reeves actually narrates it, even though they did a weird voice trans information on him or something. Anyway, those are both great watches that you shouldn't miss. 
Here's a recommendation from Joe Conyers. So I'll recommend something which I thought was really cool. I've been listening to a lot of Beats 1 lately, but I started listening to it the first day, and before they really started uh, releasing it, they played Brian Eno's uh, airport music. So if you've never listened to that, it's awesome. It's like very cool ambient music, and it was just very, like, kind of gives you the shudders when you first listen to it when they're, like, booting up Apple, Apple music for the first time. So it was a really fun uh, kind of experience to deal with Zane there, too. I mean, I was as a listener, and uh, so I highly recommend check that out if you haven't already. Here's a recommendation from Ross Barber. I am probably going to recommend a musician who I've been obsessed with for the last six months. Um, I listen to him almost every day. He's a singer-songwriter from Denmark called Mads Langer, and I just think he's incredible. His Live at Vega album, um, I actually had to sit. I I stopped in my tracks. I was sitting, working, listening to music on my headphones, and the first track came on, and within about 10 seconds, I had to literally stop what I was doing close my eyes and listen because his voice is incredible and I highly recommend it live at Vega Maslanger. And here's a recommendation from Victoria Hafner. This week I'll be recommending two tracks for you guys to check out. The first is I Can Be Afraid of Anything by The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die. It is the second single off of Harmlessness, which is their record going to be released at the end of September. And to be honest, I wasn't a huge fan of their first single, so I'm glad that this one came out to kind of change my idea about the new album. And the song is Seven Minutes About Depression, and it's somebody dealing with depression and kind of the ebbs and flows of having the disease. The beginning starts out fairly aggressive and just shows, you know, how difficult it is to handle this every day. And then it kind of halfway through turns to a lighter song and tone to show kind of more of how somebody moves beyond these limitations and copes with this and keeps going with their life. So I think the band did a great job with this and it's a beautiful song that you should definitely listen to. The second one is Throne by Bring Me the Horizon and I know that this has been released for a while but it has been on repeat for me for that long while. It's so catchy. Their new album is going to be released very very soon called That's the Spirit and I mean I'm always excited to see how Bring Me evolves and kind of just pushes the envelope in our scene. So if you don't like them, if you love them, you should definitely be checking this album out just to see where the sound is headed next. So I hope you enjoy these tracks. Happy listening. Thanks for listening to Off the Record. If you enjoy the show, the best way to say thank you is to share this episode on social media, whether it's your Twitter, your Facebook, your Tumblr, your whatever, and just tell your friends. We just want the word to spread. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it's at Off the Record FM. You can get show notes, explore old episodes at OffTheRecord.fm. If you think we should be talking about something, please let us know with the hashtag TellOTR on Twitter or ask us via Tumblr at OffTheRecord.fm. This episode was produced by Jesse Cannon and Ashley Aaron. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week.